Chapter Two of the Great Pearl Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Pearl Secret by Charles Norris Williamson. Chapter Two. The Explanation. A perfectly charming young man came in. A young man so delightful to look at that it seemed almost too much that he should be a duke. With that merry brown face, the war had left a scar across cheek and temple, those Celtic grey eyes, that jet black hair, that figure for a fencer, and above all that engaging grin of his, the merest nobody might hope to make his mark at somebody. Breezing in, as Emmy had put it, he smiled his nice smile that brought a dimple like a cut line into each thin, tanned cheek. The smile was for Juliet, whose velvet throne was opposite the door, and for her he waved aloft a small, sealed white parcel. Then he saw Lady West, and his expression changed. As the saying is, his face fell, but in half a second he had controlled his features. "'How do you do?' he inquired. His voice was as pleasant as his grin, but there was a slight stiffness in his tone for the red-haired war-widow. "'I'm going strong, thanks. Going in every sense of the word,' Emmy assured him. "'I should have taken myself off before now, only Juliet pretended not to be expecting you. Of course, the day before the wedding is supposed by old-fashioned folk to be close time for brides, where their loving bridegrooms are concerned, and so... "'I'm not old-fashioned,' said Claire Manor. "'Rather not. I've every reason for knowing that. We all have. But Juliet has some story about a bad-luck superstition. I thought you were the last man to be superstitious, Irish as you are. But it didn't sound like a joke.' "'It wasn't a joke. I'm as superstitious as the deuce about one or two things,' the man confessed. Juliet wasn't pretending, but, and he turned to the girl, I had to come. There was something I didn't want to explain in a letter, and, hang bad luck, it's a cross dog that would dare bite us. As Emmy West saw the look he gave Juliet, she felt as though her heart had been sharply pinched between a thumb and a finger. She had believed till now that his superstition was an excuse for spending his time with someone whose society he preferred to the bride's. Yet here he was, bouncing in like a bomb, with that eager light in his eyes, and in his hand a packet which might be the pearls. When Juliet explained that there was a reason why Claire Manor couldn't give his present till today, an exciting thought had tumbled into Emmy's head. What if Lyda Pavoya had refused to return the pearls he'd been teased into lending her, and had taken them to New York, where she was now dancing. Emmy visioned the poor Duke fanatically cabling the moment he had secured the American heiress, or perhaps engaging a lawyer to frighten the Polish siren. Lyda wouldn't be easy to frighten, Emmy imagined, admiringly. She, in fact, admired the dancer so sincerely that her own attempts at sirenhood were copied from Pavoya. Even if Lyda had disgorged the booty, would there have been time for it to arrive from across the Atlantic? 
Only the opening of that little parcel would show, and Emmy's jealous pain was complicated by curiosity. Still, she decided, it would be useless to wear out her welcome by lingering. The chances were that Claire Manor wouldn't break those thrilling seals till she had gone. Besides, Juliet was in a state of suppressed fury, and was capable in that mood of banishing her with rudeness. In some moods the girl was capable of anything, so Lady West kissed air in the neighbourhood of Miss Fair's burning cheeks, and accepted defeat with one sole satisfaction. If the pearls had come, or if they ever came, she had pretty well spoiled them for the future Duchess. "'Au revoir, dearest child,' she said. "'I shall be in church to-morrow, of course. "'Au revoir, Peter, and good luck in spite of the Claremanagh curse. "'I do hope it won't put on seven-league boots and follow you to New York.' "'Leather's too dear since the war for superannuated old curses to buy seven-league boots,' replied the Duke, unflatteringly prompt in opening the door. The pretty lady went to it with worm-like meekness, but turned on the threshold. "'If I meet the curse, I'll tell it to mind its business,' she laughed. "'The Claremanners have had enough bad luck. You'll create a new record working out your democratic notions in a new country, with one or two old friends there to applaud them.' With this exit speech, she put herself in charge of Parker, who would ring up the lift for her. The Duke shut the salon door and turned to the girl. He didn't even say, "'Thank goodness the woman's gone.' He seemed to have forgotten her existence. "'Heavens, what hair you have!' he exclaimed. "'I knew it must be gorgeous, but I didn't dream of this. "'Tonight I shall dream of it. "'By rights, I oughtn't to have seen this show till tomorrow night, ought I? "'But I'm glad I have. "'All your beauties bursting upon me at once would be too much for my brain.' "'Don't make fun of me.' Juliet laughed with a wistfulness rather pathetic in so pretty and so rich a girl. "'Make fun of you!' Claremanagh snatched her up from the low seat and crushed the yielding, thin-clad young body in his arms. On the sweet-scented, damp air he rained kisses. "'Am I a wooden man? Take that, and that, to punish you! Maverine, if it were to-morrow!' Between warm joy and chilling doubt, Juliet Fair shivered. If only she could believe him, believe that he cared for her, and not for the money. She almost had believed before Emmy West came. The girl burned to tell Pat what Emmy had said and hinted. If he could reassure her, it would be balm on a wound never quite healed. But if he couldn't if questioning should make bad things worse then she would wish in vain that she'd let sleeping dogs lie because she loved the man too much to give him up she had wanted him as a child wants the moon ever since the day she a gilt-edged red cross nurse had met him a soldier on leave in paris now she had got him or almost and the future might be so wonderful he had promised her uncle, Henry Fair, to live for at least half of each year in America, there to work as other men worked. Fair would supply the employment, and Juliet looked forward to being proud of her adorable husband, happy with him, 
a living proof the pair of them that an american girl can marry a duke for himself not for his title that a duke can make an american heiress his wife for love but now emmy had raked up those old rags of gossip nearly forgotten and juliet had read the paper only a few days ago about pavoya's first night in new york the furore her wild eastern dancing and strange slavonic fascination had created the girl felt sick at heart as she asked herself if pat's pleasure in the thought of seeing new york had any connection with pavoya's presence there it was all she could do not to purr out her complaints of that cat emmy west but native prudence prevailed over hot impulse she enjoyed as much as emmy permitted pat's praise of her glorious hair surely pavoya's wasn't as long or thick and probably its rusty red was due to die and then she reminded him of the parcel is it my present from you she asked almost shyly nodding toward the table where pat had thrown the neat white square instantly he let her go and took the little parcel again in his hand yes sweet it is my present for you he said but not the present i wanted to give you that's why i risked the curse and came to explain oh was the girl's non-committal answer her heart sank the pearls were not in the packet she knew now but her disappointment was not so much in missing them as in the thought that emmy could say i told you so before you open these silly seals and see what i have brought the duke went on i want to make my explanation and be sure you understand the whole business come and sit by me on the sofa will you he drew her down beside him and gathered her close of course you know all about our pearls the one ewe lamb of ancient glory left to us poor claremanners he said i don't know all about them amended juliet her heart missing a beat just tell me what you do know and then i shan't bore you with repetitions oh people have told me things she hedged didn't a tsarina of russia sell the pearls to some older ancestor of yours good lord no he chuckled never was a claremanagh so stony broke as yours truly yet never was there one since the days of pterodactyls who could run to the price of a tsarina's pearls that is in lucre my great-great-grandfather bought them with kisses but joking apart it's rather a romantic tale he was a soldier and offered his services to russia because he'd seen a portrait of the tsarina which the prince of wales had and fell in love with it well she fell in love with him too at sight he wasn't bad to look at judging from his portrait was he like you cut in juliet pat laughed they say so when we can get those pill people out of castle claremanagh their lease has a year to run you shall tell me if you find a likeness but there was an affair between the two and great-great-grandfather pat he was patrick too like all the eldest sons had it politely intimated to him through his friend wales that he'd better come home a marriage had been arranged for him he'd not have stirred a foot if it hadn't been for his love she begged him to go there was a plot to murder him it seems and as for her she'd ceased to be very popular with the tsar her husband 
she made her sweetheart promise to marry the english girl and she gave him the rope of pearls which since then had been called after her the tsarina's pearls they were for his wife as a gift from her so the girl shouldn't hate the thought of their love i should have hated it all the more cried juliet i wouldn't have worn the things if i'd been his bride well as my bride i hope you will wear them often they'll be dashed becoming to your blondness for the things are unique in one way they're blue a hundred and eighty immense and perfectly matched blue pearls never has anything been seen like them the expert johnnies say was the tsarina a blonde the girl wanted to know a copper-headed blonde you shall see her miniature juliet said nothing but she thought of lyda pavoya's head she had never seen the polish dancer but she had heard her described the traditional siren green eyes white face and red hair and she knew that emmy west modelled herself so far as nature permitted on pavoya in the ordinary sense of the word the tsarina's pearls aren't an heirloom in our family Clermana continued but the first bride who received them passed on the gift to her eldest son's bride so it has gone on ever since the thing falls to the heir or his wife and it's tacitly understood that neither the rope as a whole nor even one of the pearls shall be sold well i came into the inheritance if you can call it that seven years ago when i was twenty-one i'm afraid i'd have sold the bally thing more than once if i could have done it in common decency but i couldn't so there you are what did you do with it juliet ventured half dreading the answer her head was pressed close to pat's shoulder she could not look up at his face but she thought a muscle jumped in the arm that held her and that there was a sudden change in his tone do with it he echoed why what should i do but keep it in the bank waiting for the lady of my dreams i couldn't wear it around my neck you know but well i did get it out of the bank now and then to show to beautiful beings who begged to see it once it was in a loan exhibition for the benefit of something or other i forget what the confession i have to make though is this only two months before i met the dearest girl on earth i was so hard up i'd have had to grind a monkey organ in the streets if i hadn't been engaged in fighting for king and country i'd had some beastly bad luck with a speculation an alleged pal had let me in for and honest injun i didn't know which way to turn until a chap i know offered me two hundred thousand francs on the security of the pearls francs echoed juliet yes the man's a frenchman and the business was done in france he's a dashed good fellow in his way but it's a queer way he's a kind of gilded super money lender his transactions are only with his friends and the interest he takes is fair and square twenty per cent instead of sixty or so as the sharks do to my bitter knowledge with what i got from louis mail i paid my debts and hung on to a bit a few thousand then two months later i met you and the fact was in the fire how in the fire why i made up my mind at first sight to grab you if i could juliet broke out laughing like a child forgetful of her secret burden did you really so did i you 
bold hussy he kissed her with passion but it was worse for me than you i just lost my chance of giving you your legitimate wedding present if you'd have me the day you said yes instead of walking on air i could have thrown myself in the sea i felt such a fool silly boy cried the girl any real money-lender or even your super-gilded one would have let you have all you wanted if you'd said you were marrying silas fair's heiress i mayn't know much about business but i know that and i mayn't be no saint but i'm not a cad claremanagh capped her i wouldn't go to a money-lender on the strength of being engaged to you i don't say that if louis mayon had been in france then i'd not have wheedled the pearls back from him on the mere strength of friendship and an i o u or some such arrangement he'd have trusted me pat laughed anyhow in the circumstances but you and i were engaged a fortnight after the armistice you remember just a week before our own great day yours and mine mayon went to russia with a lot of important frenchmen of hebrew blood on a diplomatic mission he had a bad time in petrograd he and his lot were stuck in the prison of st peter and st paul by the bolshies i didn't know where the pearls were and couldn't find them that was two months ago but after six weeks in a cell mayon was released by order of lenine and it was expected in paris that he and the rest would be back in france by now we were there ourselves you and your uncle in paris and i at g h q you know till just ten days ago though it seems longer and i was hoping against hope that mayon might turn up i wouldn't say a word to you for i didn't want you to be disappointed and even as late as last night i wouldn't quite give up your cousin jack manners who is the best fellow on earth has been watching things for me in paris he'd heard that mayon had quietly sneaked out and hadn't let anyone know in order to get a good rest cure but this turns out to be a canard now you can see why i had to go out and find you a fairing as the scots say i couldn't afford anything worth while unless i borrowed so i thought things over and decided that you'd prefer a little remembrance of our wedding bought with my own pocket money and supplemented by a souvenir of my mother am i right absolutely whatever you give me i shall love it said juliet i wouldn't care if it costs sixpence it's from you that makes the value for me but pat i can't bear to think of your being poor you won't be after to-morrow i haven't liked to talk of such things but i told uncle henry i wanted a million dollars settled on you to use as you please surely if he did want i he did my child but i wasn't taking any i meant to tell you this myself when we were old married people a week after the wedding let's say but since you've brought up the subject we might as well have it out your money is going to restore claremanagh and the jolly old london house in queen anne's gate that my great-grandfather bought i don't so much mind that you'll enjoy the places and it won't be till the tenants there turn out i'm to have a screw from your uncle for pretending to work in the s p fair bank a hundred dollars a week to begin with he offered more but i wouldn't have it about a fiftieth part of which i'll really earn but even that will bring me nearly a hundred pounds a month 
so I shan't disgrace my wife by wearing paper collars or elastic-sided boots, or not getting my hair cut. Then, as my earning power increases, so will my pay. Besides, your noble guardian wants to buy my place at Maidenhead, when it's free next spring. He'll give me £60,000, which will leave me fifty when the mortgage is paid off, and Mr. Fair will advise me about investments. So you see, you're not marrying a pauper after all, my good girl. As for the pearls, it's only a delay, an annoying delay. When Mayon really does get back to Paris, he'll find a letter from me containing a post-dated cheque for the two hundred thousand francs and interest. That will come out of the fifty thousand pounds and will still leave me a decent pile. Mayon will at once take steps to get the pearls to me. But we'll be in New York, objected Juliet. How can Monsieur Mayon send them without danger of their being stolen? Trust him to arrange that, Clermana soothed her. There must be lots of ways. Besides, they'll be insured for their full value, which is supposed to be intrinsic, not sentimental. One hundred thousand pounds. What I hope is, they'll be in time for you to make a show in your box at the opera. Metropolitan Opera House, you call it, don't you? You see, I've been reading up a guide-book to New York, and now I've made all my explanations and excuses, my darling. You'd better open the poor little box. His arm still round her, the girl broke the jeweller's seals. Inside the white paper was a white velvet case, and inside the white velvet case was a string of white pearls. They were small, but good, and from them depended an old-fashioned, open-faced locket containing an ivory miniature of a beautiful boy. "'The pearls are from me,' Pat said. "'The locket and miniature are from my mother. She used always to wear the locket, and when she died eight years ago, one of the last things she did was give it to me for my bride.' Juliet Fair would not have been human if she had not forgotten in that moment both Emmy West and Lyda Pavoya. End of chapter 2